Good morning again. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we exalt you. We exalt Christ. We acknowledge our humble need for you, our dependence upon you. We acknowledge that we are not the good people. Lord, we are not here today because we have cleaned our lives up more than our neighbors, and now we are counted worthy to be here. We are just like our neighbors and those who are without Christ, except that you gave to us your own righteousness. It's completely foreign to us. It wasn't something that we worked really hard to get. It wasn't that we were more likable or lovable than others. It wasn't that we had something to offer you. It's precisely because we had nothing to offer you that you have redeemed us and made us into people who grow in sanctification. We admit that everything good in our lives is wholly a work of the Lord. And so we pray that you'd help us now, that we would listen to the word, and that you would give us grace to conform our lives to it. In Christ's name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it feels like we're going pretty fast through the book because we've already um, gotten through the first five chapters now, and we are entering into uh, chapter 6, and today will be uh, the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, In his book, uh, The Peacemaker, the author Ken Sandy writes the following. He says, litigation is often nothing more than professionally assisted denial and attack. When you enter the legal adversarial system, your attorney is expected to make you look faultless and paint your opponent as the one who is entirely responsible for the problem. This distortion of reality usually takes a devastating toll on relationships. Later on, he writes this, There are many benefits to resolving conflicts in the church rather than in the courts. Litigation usually increases tensions and often destroys relationships. In contrast, by bringing the gospel to bear on a conflict, the church can actively encourage forgiveness and promote reconciliation, thus preserving valuable relationships. Furthermore, a court process usually fails to deal with the underlying causes of conflict. In fact, the adversarial process, which encourages people to focus on what they have done right and what others have done wrong, often leaves the parties with a distorted view of reality. Another uh, a theologian in his commentary remarks and says this, Secular legal theory, too, too, has at times recognized that the very process of bringing suit almost inevitably dehumanizes all of the parties involved. John Calvin writes this, on this part, in his commentary on this passage. I confess impatience is an almost inseparable intendant 
on lawsuits. And finally, one other theologian says this, going to law changes relationships for the worse. Acquaintances or even family members become adversaries, and the drive for victory replaces the hope of reconciliation. And I've heard the same sentiment. It is hard to escape the conclusion that litigation oftentimes does more harm than it does good. And it is for this reason in our passage in front of us today that Paul writes this, why not rather be defrauded? Wouldn't that be better if you were defrauded than to pursue this course of action? It would be better for Paul to suffer loss. We will be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Of course, a very well-known passage in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth on resolving legal disputes And the Apostle Paul, I would suggest to us, really pours salt on the wound in this particular passage. Uh, You may recall, as we've been going through this study together, that in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has meticulously demolished brick by brick the wisdom of the Corinthian Christians, the wisdom of the world that they were borrowing. He left no stone unturned. The Corinthians were obsessed with worldly wisdom and integrating that into their own way of thinking. But Paul, as we have seen, particularly in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, disciplined this church with a two by four. Now he pours salt in the wound because six times... In chapter 6, we're not going to see all six of these today, but six times in chapter 6, Paul says, do you not know? It's almost as if he's kind of bringing up this past conversation. You guys think you're the ones? You think you're wise? You think you're smart? Well then, do you not know that this and this and this and this? He's saying, if you guys are as smart and as wise as you think you are, then you should know this. Paul is employing some sanctified snarkiness in the chapter in front of us today. But his firm hand is needed because the church is taking their dirty laundry and airing it out before the world for everyone to see. And they are making the gospel appear as if it were impotent, as if it were not able to change lives. The gospel might change your destiny. You might go to heaven one day, But the gospel can't do anything for the here and now. The gospel can't change our lives. The gospel has no ability to reconcile relationships. Instead, we're going to take all of our conflict to the world and let them fix our conflict. This is what they were doing. And Paul really goes after them in today's text. And yet, in spite of all of his firmness and directness, today's passage in front of us is not without its difficulties. One of the difficult aspects of this passage in front of us is to determine exactly what qualifies for legal action and what does not qualify for legal action. Paul is addressing a very specific scenario. Believers in the church of Corinth are taking believers in the church of Corinth to court for litigation. 
And Paul speaks directly uh, about this particular case of filing lawsuits against one another. And so as modern readers, we naturally want to start asking questions and broadening the text out and saying, well, what about this particular situation? And what about this particular situation? Can a believer take, for instance, an unbeliever to court? Well, what about our, our civil versus criminal cases? Is there a difference in those particular uh, situations and so on and so forth? And we're going to do the best that we can to apply this passage in those particular situations towards the end of the message today. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and look at the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1, we read this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know, his first of these six times, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We will use the following outline today. Really, it's a fairly straightforward uh, outline, two points. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to see the sufficiency of Christian ethics. And then in verses 9 through 11, we are going to see the insufficiency of worldly ethics. We are looking at this text in two sections, and these two sections are going to parallel the themes of godly wisdom and worldly wisdom that we have seen in 1 Corinthians. We've seen Paul bring up godly wisdom, we've seen him bring up worldly wisdom, and now we're going to see that play out in our passage in front of us. We begin here with the sufficiency of Christian ethics. Uh, The scenario... Uh, To introduce this is given to us in verse 1 where we read this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Seriously? Are you going to do that? He says. The apostle Paul is addressing a scenario where the Corinthian Christians would take one another to court. They were actually suing one another. Now keep in mind that... The Jews would not do this. This was, for the Jews, considered scandalous. John MacArthur writes, 
and says, For centuries Jews had settled all their disputes, either privately or in a synagogue court. They refused to take their problems before a pagan court, believing that to do so would imply that God, through his own people, using his own scriptural principles, was not competent to solve every problem. It was considered a form of blasphemy to go to court before the Gentiles. Uh, The Talmud says this, In any place where you find heathen law courts, even though their law is the same as Israelite law, you must not resort to them. Even if it's the same thing, don't go there. The church at Corinth failed to grasp the significance of this. They uh, were too preoccupied with asserting their dominance before the world. They had adopted worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, that, of course, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, God is, is bent on destroying. And so they were too consumed with self. Paul calls them to make judgments within their own church, not to outsource it to the world. And this, of course, is very consistent with what we saw in our passage last week. When we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw particularly in verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul had clearly stated in the previous chapter, that the church is to be responsible for judging its own members, for taking these matters and taking them seriously and working out the situations. Paul is calling the Corinthians to make judgments inside the church because the church is equipped with the sufficiency of the Word of God. We have everything we need as a church to know how to make righteous judgments. It's in the word of God. We have the tools that we need. We don't need to outsource judgment and justice to the world. We don't have to go out to the world and say, can you teach us something about justice and righteousness and morality? Because guess what? The word is enough. This really, by the way, uh, I'll, I'll use this as a little plug for our 9 a.m. service, going through the book Christianity and Wokeness right now. And we are talking about this very topic. The world is promoting a concept of justice and a concept of righteousness and a concept of ethics that we have to say, wait a second, does this line up with Scripture? Is the Scripture saying that this is the way in which we are to do this? And so Paul is simply saying, you don't need to go to the world to find out about justice. The Bible already gives us everything we need. And he gives us a reason here, and the reason is really, uh, the Bible uses this a lot, but the reason is a lesser to greater argument. If this is true in this case, how much more is it in this case? And so in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? How much more can you do these trivial cases? If we are going to judge the world, are, are you incompetent to do this? And of course, again, it's the do not, or do you not know, the first of six times in this chapter. He criticizes the Corinthian Christians because you, they will judge the world, and yet they have relinquished judgment in these particular situations. The irony cannot be overstated. These Christians 
are one day going to judge the very ones that they are asking to judge them. Would you judge me even though ultimately I'm going to judge you? It's certainly an irony in this particular chapter. The, tr- the Christians have the truth of Scripture, but in this context, they're treating it as if it were not truth, as if it were insufficient, as if it were not complete. We don't have all that we need in Christ. We need to go to the world for this. They are really lying about their identity. They're not confessing truth about who they are. They are Christians who will judge the world, and they are relinquishing that status. He criticizes them by asking them if they are incompetent to try these trivial cases. And then he says the same thing in verse 3 that he said in verse 2, but he ups the ante here a little bit. In verse 3, he says, don't you know that we're going to judge angels now? Not only are you going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels How much more then should you be able to judge these trivial cases? Or as he says here, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? These are um, fallen angels. Um, We as believers are going to have the opportunity one day to make judgments according to God's truth, not our own truth, but according to God's truth, the behavior of fallen angels. The point could not be clearer. If we are to judge the world and we are to judge angels, how much more should we be able to judge small matters within our own church? If this is true, then why take these cases before the world? And that's what he says in verse 4. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why would you do that? The values of the world clash with the values of the Christian They are antithetical to one another. And this, of course, takes us back to our introduction where we gave several quotations regarding the negative consequences of litigation. The goal of litigation is to win. Anything goes, legally speaking. Uh, The legal system does not place a high value on preserving relationships. You, You don't go... Uh, and, and find a lawyer, and the first thing that they say is, okay, I want to just make sure that when we're done with this whole thing, that you guys still have a good relationship with one another. <laughs> you don't care. That is not the goal. Friends become enemies. It is very difficult not to let litigation destroy relationships forever. Litigation is less concerned with ethics and morality and more concerned with the technicalities of the law and finding a loophole or a way to win, even if it is unethical. The question is, what can we do, not what should we do in this particular realm? Now, because of this, Christians who pursue litigation against one another should be ashamed. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. I say this to shame you. Can it be that there's no one, again, another uh, uh, strike at the Corinthians. Can it be, with all your wisdom, can it be there's no one wise enough to do this? You say you're so wise and you're not even wise enough to do this. It is a shame that the church today, on the whole, has not pursued Christian alternatives to the secular adversarial system. 
Christians are equipped, according to Paul here, and Christians sadly have outsourced judgment to the world in these particular areas. Now, I do want to say one thing that I think is particularly encouraging. Not all Christians have acted like what Paul is criticizing here, okay? Several years ago, you may remember that we went through a study together in a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Uh, Let me just say that if you have not, if you were not here for that, if you have not read that book, I want to highly commend uh, Ken Sandy's work to you. Uh, He has some other books, but we went through the book called The Peacemaker. Um, I would commend this book to you for anything ranging from a dispute within your own family all the way up to legal disputes. Uh, This book is excellent when it comes to resolving conflict with one another. So go buy that book if you don't have it. Uh, One of the things that I think we touched on when we went through that book is associated with that book and that author is something called Peacemaker Ministries, and they have uh, reconciliation services that offer Christian alternative to airing our dirty laundry before the world and fighting and quarreling and arguing. Uh, There are others, by the way, this is not the only organization that does this, but there are other organizations that have it as their goal to preserve relationships through these processes. Um, I would suggest to us that the church has to step up and pursue ministry in this area. The church must establish Christian alternatives to what the secular world is doing. This does not have to be big and fancy, by the way. At a minimum, and I realize not every church is equipped to do the same amount of work, every church at a minimum, every local church should be pursuing reconciliation between offended parties within the body of Christ. If we cannot do that as a church, what is wrong with that? You have a conflict going on with someone else in the church, and we as a church should be able to take you in and work through those particular issues together, promoting reconciliation and a restored relationship. If God has uh, gifted a particular church with uh, more resources, then they could go above and beyond that and perhaps establish more formal options, something like a peacemaker ministry kind of model, okay? But at at a minimum, if we want to adhere to this passage as believers, we need to first go to one another in the church to reconcile these particular differences or whatever the case might be. The Corinthians were not doing this. Instead, verse 6, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Paul says about this, to have lawsuits at all is a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Here's what verse 7 means. Even if you win, you lose. That's what he's saying. Even if you win, you lose. Financial loss, according to Paul. This is... This is, this is one of those hard-to-swallow pills, okay? According to Paul, financial loss is better than spiritual loss. It would be better to lose out financially than it would be to lose out spiritually. 
They should have preferred to be defrauded by one another. It would be better to have someone else, a fellow believer in the Corinthian church, to defraud someone else than to go out to the world and make a mess of this whole situation. One of the reasons for this, one of the, one of the reasons that being defrauded is better, I'm just telling you what the text says, okay? One of the reasons that this is better is because the Christian ultimately trusts God to right all wrongs. We are, as believers, supposed to love justice. We are to pursue justice. We will not be able to right every wrong in this world. And what does the believer do in that scenario? I can do no more here. God will put this right. And I, I, I will submit to God. This is the hope of the believer is that God is very concerned about ethics and justice and morality and righteousness. And he will ultimately set all things right. Making room for God's sovereignty and making room for God's justice is one of the most antithetical things to human nature. I don't want to do that. I'm not patient enough. I'm not whatever. God's justice will reign. And that's, again, not an excuse or to avoid pursuing it. The whole point of this passage is to pursue it, but to do it in this way and not in this way. The Corinthians should have followed verse 8, um, or they, I'm sorry, they were following verse 8, and they should not have been. You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Uh, ignoring Christian values and ethics, these people had no qualms with defrauding one another. They cared nothing for sacrificial service. They just wanted to win. They failed to realize the sufficiency of Christian ethics and likewise failed to realize the insufficiency of worldly ethics, which is what we'll see here in the next particular section. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul, he's contrasting two worldviews here. He's saying Christian ethics, Scripture, Christian justice is enough to make right decisions about reconciling broken relationships. And now what he does is he shifts and he says, I'm going to give you the opposite of this and show you why worldly justice is insufficient, why it's not enough. And so beginning in verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous, the very ones that you're going to to get justice, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you, realize, don't you realize the very ones that you think will give you a just decree are the very ones who will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Contrast. Don't you know that Christianity is enough? And the very ones you're appealing to will not inherit God's kingdom? This is who they are as unbelievers, and this is who you are as believers. Again, the difference is not one of merit. It's of God's patience and his kindness and giving to us Christ. So we don't have anything to lord it over them. That's not what this text is. The text is not, look at how much better you are than them because you're so great and wonderful. It's, if anything, it's look how much Christ has done for you. And then he's saying, look at who these people, These people are not going to inherit God's kingdom, and you want justice from them? And this is where Paul goes on, having introduced this particular topic, goes on an inspired rabbit trail, and he begins to explain things about these people who will not enter God's kingdom. Let me tell you a little bit about these people. He says, those who are unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Who are they? And he gives the list, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, and so on. So let's look at these. We'll kind of go through these fairly quickly. First up is sexually immoral people. Those who are sexually immoral will not inherit God's kingdom. The Greek word is the word pornos, and you guys probably recognize the English word that we get uh, out of this, the English word porn or pornography. Uh, Sometimes you hear it in Greek, porneia. This is a broad designation in Greek for anyone who is a fornicator. Okay, this is what the word means. Uh, it's, It's fornication. This would include anything other than biblical sexuality between a man and a woman in marriage. Anything outside of that is pornos. This would include harlotry, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, extramarital sex, and anything else that is outside of the bounds of what God has given to us in his word. That's number one. Those people are not going to inherit God's kingdom. Number two, idolaters. Again, this is a broad designation. Um, this does not just include someone who has a physical statue in their home and bows down to this idol. Idolatry could be valuing anything or worshiping anything above Christ. Entertainment, a love for entertainment is idolatry. A love of entertainment that's gone off the rails is idolatry. A love for your car that has gone off the rails is idolatry. God has given us good things to enjoy. We enjoy those things, but we enjoy those things out of proportion. We enjoy those things more than we enjoy God himself. That's idolatry. That's like all of us, by the way, okay? (laughs) None of you escaped that, okay? We are all idolaters in some way or form. Next one is adultery. Uh, He had talked about uh, pornos in the general fashion, and now he's talking about one specific Uh, sexual sin, those who are unfaithful to their spouse, okay, so someone who is married and then is unfaithful to their spouse is an adulterer. 
Next on the list is men who practice homosexuality. Now, um, I'm going to have to pause here for just a moment because I'm just slightly disappointed in what the ESV did here. Um, And I have to explain what the ESV did to understand what's going on here. The ESV is translating this as one thing, men who practice homosexuality. There are two Greek words here going on. And some translations, like the ESV, envelop them into one uh, statement. So if you have uh, the NASB, does anyone have the NASB here today? Okay, if you have the NASB. So in the NASB, um, you'll see that it says, it takes this men who practice homosexuality, and it's two things. It says those who are effeminate and those who are homosexuals. So two different things, effeminacy and homosexuality. If you do have an ESV, you'll observe that there's a footnote that says this. You can look down at your footnote in the ESV, and it will say the two Greek terms, so they acknowledge there's two Greek terms, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Um, So there's two words here. One is a little bit more passive. One is a little bit more active. Uh, The first Greek word is the word malakos. um, And then the second one is arsenikoites. The first one, malakos, according to one prominent Bible lexicon, means being passive in a same-sex relationship or effeminate. So there's this idea of effeminacy or passivity going on here. The second word refers to the homosexual act itself, okay? So this raises the bar. What I'm saying is the ESV doesn't totally make this clear, but it's raising the bar. It's saying not only homosexuality is called out, but effeminacy too. This word, the same word for effeminate, is used four times in the Greek New Testament, okay? The ESV translates the other three times with the word soft, okay? So in Matthew eleven eight, here's one of them. Jesus is talking about Elijah, or, or um, uh, John the Baptist, sorry. And he's talking about the fact, you know, you didn't go out to see this, you know, well-to-do man out in the woods, So he says, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft? That's the word that the NASB translates as effeminate. Did you go out to see someone dressed in soft clothing? Well, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Paul takes this same word soft, and he puts it in the same sentence with homosexuality. And so he's calling out soft men. He's calling out passive and effeminate men. The 1890 Darby Bible translates this word this way, those who make women of themselves. The Tyndale 1536 translation translates this as weaklings. And then many other translations like the NASB use the word effeminate. Um, we live in a culture of weak effeminate men. We do. We, we live in a culture 
surrounded by this malakos idea. We live in a culture of soft men. We have no concept of biblical manhood. And the church in America has not helped this at all. The church, by and large. To borrow uh, something from uh, Jim Berg, talking about these kinds of churches that are uh, effeminate, he says, the men in these churches don't bring their Bibles, they bring their moisturizer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this, is, this is the church in America. Right? Am, am I wrong? This is the church in America. It's, it's a soft, effeminate form of Christianity. A number of years ago, the Wall Street Journal published an article with this title, and I, and I think I've actually quoted some from this article before uh, a few years ago, but Wall Street Journal published an article called this, Where Have All the Good Men Gone? This is the Wall Street Journal, okay? Where Have All the Good Men Gone? And here's uh, what the author writes. Uh, in the intro to this article. Not so long ago, the average American man in his 20s had achieved most of the milestones of adulthood. A high school diploma, financial independence, marriage, and children. Today, most men in their 20s hang out in a novel sort of limbo, a hybrid state of semi-hormonal adolescence and responsible self-reliance. They live in this limbo, and this author, she goes on in this article to talk about the current culture of men who are, not reach, are, are reaching adulthood at far later stages in, in, in their life than we did years ago. The man, the man who stays at home and plays video games and does not commit to anything and is not responsible. This is what's, go, this is what's being described in our passage in front of us. Soft men. The author, and to my knowledge, this author is not a believer at all. This, the author of this article connects, you know, she connects with the rise of soft men. Anyone want to guess? Feminism. Feminism is the catalyst and cause of this rise of, of, of soft men, she says. Soft men are marked by their devotion to self and their lack of commitment. Soft men are lazy. And to borrow from Jim Berg again, he says that men should be eating commitment for breakfast. This is the mark of a man. The mark of going from childhood to manhood is that you are committed. You're telling yourself no. I'm not going to live this way. I'm going to live this way. What, what, what is the, one of the, the, the foremost ways that a man shows commitment? By, by rejecting hookup culture, by getting married, having a wife and children, and caring for them sacrificially. That, that is a huge part of biblical manhood. Um, to be a man is to control your passions rather than allowing your passions to control you. And so I think, I, I, I'm going to suggest this to us, the, the Bible puts them together, effeminacy and homosexuality. I would suggest to us that soft, effeminate men eventually become, not every last one, but eventually become men who practice homosexuality. It is a gateway to homosexuality is soft effeminacy. 
And so this passage is calling us not to be characterized that, by that, but to be godly men. What does Paul say about those people? They don't inherit the kingdom of God. Next in the list uh, is something I think that we're all familiar with. We all know what thieves are. Thieves are in this list, people who steal. He also has uh, those who are greedy, those who are drunkards. Reviler is an abusive person. A swindler is a robber. And Paul says that all of these people are not going to be, be are not going to inherit God's kingdom. But what I want to note here is that this is more than just a let's throw stones message. Because there is something full of incredible hope in this particular passage in front of us. And that's in verse 11. Such were some of you. One commentator believes that this is one of the most important statements in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We cannot gloss over this statement. What, what does such were some of you mean? Why is there so much hope embedded in this statement? The, the gem of hope is contained in this. People who once behaved as those who would be excluded from God's kingdom now can be welcomed into God's kingdom. Nothing on this list excludes people from God's kingdom. Why? Because of repentance and belief in Christ, and he gives to us his righteousness. Such were some of you. You you too were like this. This also gives us some hope, not only for justification, but for sanctification. You used to act this way, and now you're growing in your sanctification so that you're not doing those things anymore. The the entire church is a group of people where we can say, such were some of you. We could go through one by one. And, And I was this, I was this. I was this, I was this, I repented, I trusted in Christ, and the Lord has given me grace to grow in that, so I'm not characterized by that anymore. Christianity is practical. It works. It's effective. It's efficacious, if I can use that word. It actually does something. All of us can say, such were some of us. Let us rejoice that God saves people like that. Otherwise, we would have absolutely no hope. So where do we go from here? Remember this. The values of the, the secular humanists clash with the values of the Christian. This passage is a contrast of values. This is what the world values. This is what God values. Therefore, you're competent to judge these issues. We should not go to the world in order to solve our problems. We must go to Christ. We must go to the church. So I want, 
I want to go to a little bit of application in terms of what does this mean legally for us? Because uh, I know that this is, this is the question that we all have. What about this situation? What about that situation? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And we could generate about a billion different scenarios and say, does this apply to what Paul's talking about? Um, I'm going to try to put this in modern categories the best that I can. Um, and I'd be willing to talk more about this uh, afterward as well um, to try to apply some of these things specifically. So let's give this scenario. What about civil cases between believers? A civil case, not a criminal case, civil case between two believers. Remember, Paul is specifically talking about litigation between church members, so we can say that's out. We don't have the option as believers to take one another to court over these civil matters. Um, You can't pursue that, according to Paul, in the world. You can pursue it, but just inside of the context of the local church or within an organization like we mentioned at the beginning, Peacemaker Ministries or something like that. Something where we as Christians are trying to reconcile these civil matters between ourselves and the principles that God gives in his word to preserve relationships, okay? The principle here I think that Paul is giving us is don't air your dirty laundry before the world. That's the principle. What counts as that? Those are the things that we should not do, okay? So what about criminal cases? I don't think that Paul is talking uh, about criminal cases, Because if you take the broad scope of Scripture, he's talking about things where you're offending one another, trivial cases. And then he also talks about, in Romans 13, a legitimate place for civil authority in these criminal cases. So we should not try to judge a murder trial or something like that, okay? Um, Not because there are not... Not because a Christian could not do that competently, but because God has ordained legitimate spheres of authority in his word, and he has said these belong in this sphere, and these belong in this sphere, okay? Um, Keep in mind that society works as God has intended it when each authority stays inside the boundaries God has given. So in the, the authority of the home, there's a boundary for that. The home could go beyond its authority, The church has a boundary for its authority. It could go outside of that. The government has a boundary of authority, and it can go outside of that, okay? So while there are things that the government can do that are outside of their realm of authority, things that we should uh, uh, work against, as the apostles did in Acts, there are legitimate roles that the government does and can take on that we should submit to. And since Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 6 seems to be disputes, I think that it would be appropriate to say that we bring civil cases uh, to the church between believers, and then criminal cases would go to um, the, the, the law courts. Okay, what about, here's another scenario. What if a fellow Christian sues you? Okay, we're saying you don't bring someone else to court, but what happens if they sue you and now you're, obligated to do this. I I would suggest Matthew 5 is the principle here. 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. There are going to be scenarios where we have, (laughs) where our hand is forced. And in that case, we're still applying 1 Corinthians 6. We're still trying to avoid it. It's just we're doing everything that we can um, in, in our power to do this outside of court, knowing the destruction it's going to cause. Okay, so that's, that's the goal there. What about civil cases between a believer and an unbeliever? Remember, Paul's talking about cases between two believers. What about a believer and an unbeliever? I would suggest to us that this is permissible, and I would suggest the reason is because Paul did this all throughout the book of Acts over and over and over and over again. I'm going to give you two examples of this. In Acts 16, 30, 30, uh, 35 to 37, um, we read this. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent them to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. So Paul could have, he's dealing with an unbelieving magistrate, an unbelieving government, and he's a believer, and he could have just walked away. Okay? But he doesn't. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. (laughs) I'm going to push you a little bit here. Um, This is a case where Paul doesn't just walk away. He is, and he's doing this for the sake of the gospel, by the way. Uh, Here's a second instance where he does this. Paul, in Acts 25, 11, if I am then a wrongdoer and have committed anything which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul makes an appeal to Caesar. And there is a legitimate way to do that. And in this case, he's doing this before uh, unbelievers. And and I think that's uh, a legitimate uh, use of that. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is you're not airing your dirty laundry before the world. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not trying to bite and devour another Christian so that unbelievers would say, look at how, how those Christians are a bunch of jerks. He's, he's, he's bringing a different situation altogether. Now, I want to give you a caution here. Do not take this passage as simply what can and can't I do in terms of litigation. It is that. But it is more than that. This, is a, this passage is a call for us to pursue godly wisdom, right? If you are going to have the ability to judge between situations, you better start cracking open your Bible and reading it and pursuing wisdom in this area. So, so you think, let's look at the negative side. Let's look at the positive side. Pursue Christ-like godly wisdom to know how I can resolve these particular issues. This is also a call for us to remove the log out of our own eyes so that we will see clearly to resolve the issues and lives of others. Don't wait around for conflict to come so you can say, ah, I'm the arbiter of all this stuff when you've got all these issues in your own life. Get that right now. It is a call, I think, I would suggest to us that this is a call for Christians to establish alternatives to secular litigation. This is, this is a call for us to build something different that has different values in mind. 
And again, Peacemaker Ministries is one of those. Again, I'm not saying that we have to have our own organization in 501c3 or whatever it might be, Um, but we should be pursuing this in some form or fashion. It's also a call for us to embrace biblical counseling. You want to know what this looks like in a non-law setting? Biblical counseling. We don't need the world to tell us what justice is and how to reconcile people. The Bible has it. So don't go after the world's wisdom. Go after biblical wisdom. Equip yourself to do biblical counseling. And if you want to equip yourself, I have a way to do that. See me afterwards. (laughs) Um, It's a call for us to love justice, true biblical justice, not the world's definition of justice. It's a call for us to embrace Amos 5 that says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The church cannot relinquish her authority to the world. Let us be Christians that love justice and pursue it to the glory of God. Three points of application. Number one, pursue reconciliation within the church. A biblical church is not a church absent of conflict. Okay? If you are here because you think... We're not going to have conflict. You are sadly mistaken. Okay? If I, have, if I personally have not let you down at some point, I will probably do that very soon. Okay? That is, the, the mark of a healthy church is not an absence of conflict. That will come one day in, 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 in heaven. The absence of a biblical church is a continually repenting church and a continually reconciling church and a continually forgiving church over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's what's going to mark us as a healthy church is is that we are constantly going to one another in resolving those issues. So we pursue reconciliation in the church. Number two, hard to swallow pill, be willing to be defrauded in order to adorn the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win no matter what. There, there, you could be like a bull in a china shop, and that's not what we've been called to do. So be willing to take blows, even from your fellow Christians and fellow believers. For this. Now, I'm not saying don't pursue reconciliation of those things, but I'm saying be willing to take those blows for the sake of the gospel. And number three, pursue wisdom and justice by consuming the word. This is the source that Paul points to, not in the world. If you don't know Christ, may I encourage you, his justice is better. His righteousness is better. Repent and believe on Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today and your wisdom and the word. Help us now as we go that we might adorn the gospel through our actions. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.